0: You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to academics and students, I'm your host, Emma Fabregate. Today I'm interviewing Will Clapton.
1: Risk is inherently contestable and is usually contentious because people who are advocating for risk management and who are pointing to risks and saying, hey, we need to act on this before it's too late, they don't usually have any firm material thing to point to. They are effectively telling a story and they're trying to get the rest of us to accept that the story that they are telling.
0: Dr. William Clapton is a senior lecturer in international relations at UNSW Sydney. He is the author of the book Risk and Hierarchy in International Society, Liberal Interventionism in the post cold Era, and has published articles in International Relations, International Politics, Politics, and the Australian Journal of International Affairs. He is currently preparing a forthcoming volume on risk and the immigration practices of the Trump administration, called Risk, Security, and Immigration under the Trump Administration, Keeping Undesirables Out. We will be discussing his research on risk management, security discourse, and its centrality in international relations, from topics such as immigration under the Trump administration to the broader effects and motives for securitization. I wanted to know if you could explain firstly what security discourse and security theory is.
1: In international relations, security or security studies has been one of the the primary areas of exploration in the discipline so some would say it's the central area of the discipline given that the you know, if you listen to the traditional stories about the discipline's Genesis, international relations began after World War one precisely as a way of stopping wars from occurring so security and peace have always been pretty much at the center of the discipline. Security theory is really just all about the different kind of theoretical frameworks and concepts that we employ uh, to understand security practice, how states perceive their security or strategic environment, and also to understand the sorts of discourse or the things that they say. About security, uh, so that effectively is what security discourse is—the the kind of modes of representation, whether they be visual or verbal or some other medium of signification—that states and non-state actors alike use to make representations, tell stories about security, what they think it is, what they think the threats to security are, what they think the referent object is, which is the term that is used in the security literature and IR to simply mean the object which is to be protected.
0: Okay and so what would the purpose therefore in creating the concept of a risk? Is it a form of public control and who can create these concepts?
1: So often the focus is on the political elite. That's normally who we're looking at and by that I mean basically government leaders and, and senior state officials. The, the general story that gets told about the, the transition to risk in the in the post-Cold War era in particular, is that I mean it depends on which theory of risk I should mention you're you're following, because there's a couple of different approaches. But if you're looking at the work of a famous sociologist called Ulrich Beck and his Risk Society thesis, which has since been incorporated into IR to explain security and security issues, basically the emergence of risk and emergence of discourses of risk and representations of risk are a function of a changing strategic environment. So the Cold War ends, the Soviet Union collapses in in 91, and effectively Western states are left with a very different, radically altered strategic environment in which they no longer face this easily identifiable, overwhelming threat in the form of the Soviet Union, but instead face a range of quote, lower level risks to their security. But the catch with these risks is that they're not easily identifiable or definable in terms of time and space. So they are largely unknown and that creates a level of anxiety, a level of concern that prompts certain measures to be taken, basically measures that would be called risk management with an emphasis on things like prevention and precaution in particular. And another one I use in the three P's is what I use in my book. The other one being the first of those three, actually, which is proactive anticipation. So the the thing about risks and what makes them so potentially dangerous and so politically contentious is that risks are effectively imaginations of things that have not happened. Risks don't deal with what exists. They deal with what might exist and what might occur. So that creates a danger and that they could be used to, to justify almost anything. Um, that along with the emphasis on prevention uh, means that, you know, we're effectively justifying and legitimating action, including war and the use of force on the basis of things that we don't know, but we think might happen. And the Iraq war is kind of the epitome of the dangers and an example of how risk can legitimate what might be seen as reckless and according to some criminal behavior um because again you have an anticipation you have a, a representation that Iraq might have w m d and uh you know we were faced in two thousand and two with a situation in which bush and blair and and John Howard, then leaders of the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia respectively, were talking about you know we can't wait for the smoking gun, we can't wait for the mushroom cloud over. New York or, you know, we can't wait for something bad to happen before we deal with this. So we need to, to be very clear, invade a sovereign state in contravention of existing international law without Security Council approval in order to prevent something that we think might happen. And as we subsequently found out, those anticipations of risk were effectively false positives because 17 years later, where are the WMD?
0: And so then to what extent can we therefore disregard in error quotations security risks without then taking into account actual risks? Like is there a differentiation between them?
1: Not for me, no. All risks are both actual and potential. They're actual in the sense that they are brought into being by the things that we say and the things that we do and the representations that we make. Again, they risks live and they exist in discourse. So the moment we start talking about risks, we bring them into being, but they're always potential, right? Because potentiality is a fourth P. It's inherent and fundamental to risk. It's always about the potential of something happening that is the problem. So risks for me are always both actual and potential.
0: Okay. And so when you were talking about risk management, when it comes to that, can you walk me through the different methods that exist and what would be the most effective?
1: So in terms of effectiveness, I would say at the moment, I'm I'm not sure when it comes to security because so many of the interventions we've seen and the risk management initiatives that have taken place haven't tended to be particularly successful. Uh, So certainly Bush's and Blair's and Howard's attempt to mitigate security risks by invading other countries and promoting liberalism and democracy, which is what I talk about in, in my book, didn't work out that well. And Iraq still faces a series of really significant deeply ingrained security challenges and Afghanistan is still subject to Western intervention and again also faces a number of very significant strategic challenges. If we're just looking at Bush, Blair and Howard risk management circa 2001 to 2003, 4, whatever, you would say, hmm, hasn't necessarily been that successful. So, Basically, I talk about it in fairly general terms, in terms of the sorts of characteristics that you might expect uh, from a risk management approach. And again, it comes down to those P's, proactive anticipation, prevention, and precaution, which is basically, that sort of revolves around the precautionary principle, the kind of better safe than sorry doctrine. I think Dick Cheney put it, you know, if there's even a 1% chance that something adverse or negative could occur then we absolutely have to take action to stop it. And so I'm running a piece at the moment which suggests that effectively it can run the gauntlet from everyday kind of normalized practices like insurance or surveillance to the more kind of exceptional actions or occurrences like invasion, the use of force, and violating international law and acting against the wishes of the UN Security Council. So it it is really quite diverse, it's quite dynamic, and we often see different approaches to risk management applied simultaneously.
0: Yeah, of course, that makes a lot of sense. If we talk about, for example, Australia, do you have any examples of how Australia has a security discourse towards a certain thing that you would say is just a perceived risk rather than an actual legitimate risk?
1: Yeah, so one of the chapters in the book talks about Australia's foreign aid and development program in the South Pacific and the shift that occurred in 2003 when the Howard government launched, along with the Pacific Islands Forum, the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. And so if you go back to Hansard and look at the speech that Howard gave in Parliament in June or July, I think it was 2003, basically announcing the start of Ramsey and justifying the intervention in the Solomon Islands, basically... He talked about it in terms of risks. The Solomon Islands had been embroiled in disorder and civil conflict for a number of years. And Australia had, before 9-11, been quite reticent to intervene directly in Pacific Island states for fear of being seen as a a neo-colonial power in the region and and, you know violating these states sovereignty so a lot of australia's aid program have been more hands-off provide development assistance and funding for specific programs but don't directly intervene in these countries themselves and that shifted quite radically in 2003 when ramsey was launched and so you've got disorder in the solomon islands how our government basically looks at it and says, well, you know, we can't have a failed state on the doorsteps of Australia because that failed state might become a launching pad for terrorist attacks against Australia. You know, again, it kind of gets justified on the basis of ifs, buts and maybes rather than is or will. So future anticipations of things that might occur uh, are used to legitimate a military intervention in in a sovereign state. Now, the Solomon Islands requested it. And welcomed it so it's not the same thing as um as the invasion of iraq or afghanistan but again as i argue in the book it sort of is the same sort of mode of risk management as what we see there so yes it has a kind of a greater veneer of legitimacy but at the same time it's again the same thing of going into a a sovereign state of the global south using military force to secure the territory, and then in the case of Ramsey, implanting Australian officials, predominantly Australian officials, in line positions within the Solomon Islands government to to basically yeah, reform its political institutions and reform its governance from the ground up, transform it into a functioning liberal democracy, and it no longer presents risks to Australian security.
0: And when we're talking about Australia, do you think there may be an ulterior motive for wanting to intervene in its region? Could it maybe be used as a way of increasing its perceived strength and ranking within the international front, maybe shifting beyond its middle power status?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, The thing I often had to kind of question and deal with when talking about Iraq in particular was, you know, was it actually about the risks or was it about oil and access to resources? Uh, In the Solomon Islands, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that there was an ulterior motive beyond the core kind of strategic interests. And, you know, it, it should be noted that Australia has long seen itself as the regional power in Oceania or in the South Pacific and has long wanted to ensure that it has primary influence over the Solomon Islands and other Pacific Island states um, over the South Pacific and has always long been wary of the influence of other countries because it sees those pacific island states as a in its own backyard and b as a strategically significant kind of buffer to potentially hostile power having control of any of the pacific island states would be a risk to australia because it would be a point from which attacks against australia or her interests could be launched and that's why at the moment we see a lot of discussion around increasing chinese influence in the South Pacific and all the kind of alarm over stories about China maybe building military bases in Vanuatu, I think it was. So yes, Australia, again, has a long-standing foreign policy interest in the South Pacific. Direct response to your question, again, no, there's not a lot to suggest that there were ulterior motives beyond that.
0: Okay. And if we move on to your second book that you're currently writing on the Trump administration and its immigration practices, could you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Uh, I've been looking at uh, Trump's wall and travel ban in particular, and that's what the the book focuses on in terms of the Trump administration's immigration policies. And what struck me was that, again, despite being a very different sort of risk management action, it can still be understood, as I argue in the book, and, and it's still intelligible. Um, via the logic of, of situational risk management, so that is to say that even though it's different from going overseas and invading other countries and trying to promote liberal democracy, it's still a, an attempt at managing environments within which risks might occur in order to to prevent them from from ever materializing. Uh, with Trump, uh, as is. much the case for his his outlook in general the the emphasis is less on looking outwards and more on on looking inwards so it's about target hardening and resilience and and erecting uh, physical uh, and other sorts of barriers uh, that will stop risks from or risky individuals or groups i should say from entering the united states uh, in the first place so rather than again managing the environment within which risks are produced the immigration policies are more about managing the environment within which risks might materialise again the United States.
0: But surely Trump's focus on internal resilience through both physical and conceptual barriers has also come with some resistance and even potentially could have attracted some new sorts of risks.
1: Potentially, yeah. It's also created significant discord within the United States as well. In the case of the Trump administration and Trump's rhetoric, it's really, I think anyway, quite apparent that there is a significant racial or racialized basis to understanding who is risky or what is risky and who or what is not. So there's a real kind of othering that occurs when the Trump administration talks about risky individuals and undesirables. And a lot of that kind of relates to this kind of image of brown people coming from Mexico and South America and coming up through Central America trying to illegally get into the United States because they don't want them there because they're all, you know, supposedly drug runners and criminals. They're gang members and they'll come into the United States and they'll commit murders and they'll do this and that. So there is no real nuance to the sorts of claims that have been made. Trump has often, over the last few years, wheeled out families of people who had loved ones allegedly murdered or murdered by immigrants or by gang members who allegedly came into the United States illegally so again there's a real kind of othering that goes on and that has a racial basis before you were talking about you know why people support the travel ban and support immigration restrictions in general you know there was a good deal of opposition to it as well you were talking about resistance too but that resistance came not just from the affected populations the people who were targeted by the travel ban and uh, being targeted by the wall but uh, also internally as well. So. One of the first things Trump did when he was inaugurated in January 2017 was pass Executive Order 13769, which was version one of the travel ban. There have been three versions. And that, if you recall, resulted in protests and demonstrations at airports across America. There were you know, images all over the news. As a result of those protests and as a result of a series of legal challenges brought by individuals, groups, and by states in the US themselves, they revised the travel ban and issued Executive Order 13780, which changed a list of countries and made a few other changes that we don't need to go into, but That one, again, was subject to legal challenge. That one, again, was was fairly heavily contested. And then finally, in September 2017, Trump issued Presidential Proclamation 9645, and that is version three of the travel ban, and that's the current version. There've been some more tweaks since then, but it was that third version of the travel ban that was upheld by the Supreme Court. That's how far the legal contestation went, and went all the way to the Supreme Court, which eventually ruled in favor of the president's ability to limit immigration and impose the sorts of restrictions that he had via the trouble ban. I just wanted to underscore that risk is inherently contestable and is usually contentious because people who are advocating for risk management and who are pointing to risks and saying, hey, we need to act on this before it's too late, they don't usually have any firm material thing to point to. They are effectively telling a story and they are trying to get the rest of us to accept that the story that they are telling is one which is accurate and which will actually come to pass. And as we've seen, Iraq, Afghanistan, even Ramsey and the Solomon Islands, absolutely in terms of Trump's wall and travel ban, often you will find there will be a, a significant proportion of the population who doesn't accept that story, who doesn't accept anticipations of risk. And that will lead to contest and conflict. Do you like global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with the upcoming events.
0: And for this internal resilience that he's creating about the other, how has he been able to make it so legitimate? Is it because of the media or because there's this inherent belief?
1: Well, there's certainly a core part of the American population and Trump's support base that absolutely supports this. And we know that there's been a significant backlash against immigration and against immigrants across western countries as a part of the kind of populist wave that's been going on for the last sort of 5 or 6 years or so so trump's policies and support for them in that sense aren't necessarily particularly surprising there's been a real uptick in the demonization of, of immigrants uh, an uptick in in the demonization of the other and and again despite protests that, you know, it's not about race, some of us would argue, and I would include myself in in this category, that there is a racial basis to it because the other is often brown or or black bodies and not white bodies. And so it sort of seems obvious to me that, yes, again, there is a racial basis to this.
0: And with everything that's obviously going on at the moment with COVID-19, do you think that plays a role in further legitimizing his perception of the other,
1: yeah, I think it will certainly make it easier for Trump to to make the case and to make his argument for restrictive immigration practices. He'll be able to say, hey, the moment we face the risk of this global pandemic, we don't know who's got it and who doesn't. In the current context, it will probably be easier for harder border control and closed borders.
0: Now coming full circle, I wanted to ask your opinion on where security discourse is heading. IR still heavily relies on realist and liberalist approaches, but theories within constructivism have become increasingly relevant.
1: That's a good question. Looking at risk has uh, taught me one thing: it's that making predictions about the future is often a dangerous enterprise. I'm not sure. I think I would say that you know, constructivism and, and post-structuralist and, and critical approaches are here to stay. Uh, you know, even as a undergrad, I was reading stuff you know written in the early to mid '90s about constructivist and post-structuralist and critical approaches to security. A lot of it will be dictated though by what happens in the world around us. So expect to see a lot more on public health and pandemics in the security literature over the next few years. I'm sure there's a bunch of COVID-19 articles just waiting to appear in a, an academic journal near you. But you know, the risk stuff really came about as a result of an observation of what was going on in the world around us. Right? So The risk stuff didn't kind of materialize out of thin air. It is a reaction to the sorts of things that are happening in the world and the sorts of things that have been said by the decision makers and by political leaders. So risk stuff really took off after 9-11 and took off after George W. Bush started talking about rogue states and failed states and anticipatory self-defense and published a 2002 U.S. National Security Strategy, which directly talked about taking action even if, I think the quote is, uncertainty remains as to the time and place of the enemy's attack. That's exactly what I was talking about before in terms of what Beck caused the debounding of risk, the notion that risks can't be easily identifiable in terms of time or space. The 2002 Security Strategy talks about two kind of core cool things that we were talking about in terms of risk, two of the P's. Uh, one is is prevention, yes, of things happening uh, even if we don't know where exactly these things are going to happen or what they might look like. Uh But two, related to that, precaution, right? Like we can't take the chance that uh we're wrong in our anticipations of risk. We t- can't take the chance that it won't be as bad as what we think it might be. We We have to just take action now, even if we end up being wrong, which again was the case in Iraq. So one thing I would say is that, yes, Risk probably isn't going anywhere. I mean, I'm writing another book on it now. I don't think it has. I think a through line can be traced from the Bush to the Obama to the Trump administrations when it comes to the ways in which they talk about security uh, and talk about strategic issues and and managing their immediate strategic environments. I mean, the, the Trump administration's 2017 National Security Strategy literally directly talks about risk and resilience as core parts of its strategy for managing American national security. But where exactly risk itself goes and what that will look like, again, I hesitate to, to offer a guess.
0: Okay, well, and so if somebody's listening and wants to find out more about you or read some of the pieces that you've written, where can they find you?
1: So my UNSW website is probably the best place to go to to get information or if you go to research.unsw.edu.au and type my name in the search box you will find a picture and a link to me and all of my publications. Many of those publications are behind a paywall unfortunately so if you're looking for copies of my written work please send me an email at w.clapton at unsw.edu.au and I will be happy to forward PDFs and copies on.
0: Perfect. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us through our social media, website, or links in the description. This is Global Questions, and thanks for listening.